Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend and is enjoying the last bits of summer. I know some of you are back at work already, but uh, the majority of people are still kind of rolling into the new year. And technically, summer doesn't end until September, but uh, who are we kidding? Summer is over when educators have to go back to work. Uh, I'm back in Tumwater, Washington today and tomorrow. And then it's off to Saskatoon for two days with the Greater Saskatoon Catholic Schools, so the crazy season of travel is just continuing. Also have the Fantasy Football Draft coming up on Saturday, so this is going to be a fun week, a great week, lots of work, but also uh, looking forward to reconnecting with my Fantasy Football League uh, this coming Saturday. Uh, upcoming events to remind you of, uh, if you want to get a jump on the PD season this fall, uh, Grading from the Inside Out, two-day training, that'll be in Jonesboro, Arkansas, September 25 and 26. Uh, Charleston, South Carolina, that'll be October 11th and 12th. And St. Louis, Missouri, December 6th and 7th. And again, December's uh, Grading from the Inside Out, facilitated by Natalie Vardavasso. Uh, Standards-Based Learning in Action, that's going to be in Seattle, October 16th and 17th. So I've got links in the show notes for all of those events. Uh, so check those out if you're interested in that. Also, a reminder that the latest book I've put out, uh, Redefining Student Accountability, that's available now. I've got a link in the show notes for that as well. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I really do appreciate all of you. Uh, this week is a solo episode. I was all set to interview uh, Alex Cacciatani, uh, but life happens, and Alex had to reschedule. So we'll have Alex on another time. So instead, you have me for a solo episode, which will probably end up being a little bit shorter than the usual episodes I put out. In Assessment Corner this week, we have a listener question about converting levels to letter grades in a percentage-based gradebook. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. In this week's Mindset Minute, I want to talk about the idea called act as if. Now, the idea is essentially that we have to act as if what we want to have happened has already happened. Now, this is more about our disposition than actually physically acting in that way. I mean, if I want a promotion to become a department chair, assistant principal, or whatever I want in my life, I don't actually act as if I'm already in that role with other people. That, that would be weird. It's more about your mindset. What you do is dispositionally act as if what you want has already happened. When you do that, all the anxiety is gone, all the stress is gone, all the worry is gone, because everything you're worrying about has already happened. So you ask yourself, how will I feel if I actually achieve what I want to achieve? And this goes back to the idea that our thoughts produce our emotions, and it's our emotions that actually often determine our experiences. The, the idea is actually to kind of trick your subconscious mind. By acting as if what you want has already happened, you kind of trick your subconscious mind into believing that you are already that department chair, that assistant principal, or whatever it is you're wanting to accomplish. So you'll start to think and speak in present tense in hopes of drawing what you desire more closer to you. Again, as I've said before, I know this can feel a little hokey to some of you and it's easy to be cynical and all of those different things, but think about it from a practical perspective. What mindset puts you closer to what you desire? 
If we don't know whether or not our positive affirmations or frames of mind or positive thinking will produce the desired results, wouldn't we at least be wise to put ourselves in the frame of mind or the emotional state that brings us closer to what we want? In other words, we know a pessimistic or negative mindset is definitely going to draw you further away from what you want. So if we're not sure whether or not our mindset will or will not produce the desired result as we desire it, it's still more beneficial to put yourself in that frame of mind that, it, that it'll actually work as opposed to it won't work. That mindset will bring you closer to what you desire and actually make your present experience more enjoyable. This is what I did when I first contemplated resigning from my district-level position and embarking on this role as an author and a speaker 13 years ago. I've talked about this before on the podcast, about how I developed a habit of daily journaling. Now, what I would do is I would write out scenarios as if they had already happened, even though I had not even resigned from my job yet and started this career. I begin with sentence starters such as, My keynote presentation was amazing. The audience appreciated both the substance of my presentation, but also the style with which I presented it. And I would go on to describe in great detail how people reacted, what I said, the whole atmosphere around it, the whole, all of the circumstances. Or I would write about how my books were bestsellers, even though I hadn't published anything yet. By just writing it out and rereading it, it generated the feeling that I wanted to feel when those things actually occurred. Now, whether it was a coincidence or I caused it, I don't know, it's irrelevant. The fact is in that moment, I felt exactly how I would feel when those things happened. And when they did occur, it actually felt familiar, even though it had happened for the first time. So think about something you want to have happen. Imagine how you will feel when that happens. Then create a habit. Journaling, meditation, listening to music, visualizing, something, some habit that generates the feeling so that it feels in the present moment as if, you, what, if, as if you, what you wanted to have happened has actually happened. Now, this is not a magic trick I'm talking about where you necessarily get exactly what you want in terms of specificity. What I've learned from so many people over the years and so many people that I've listened to or read is that we don't necessarily get what we want all the time, but we do get what we are. If you're joyful, if you're optimistic, if you're motivated, if you're excited, if you have that disposition, then my experience has taught me that your life will align with that mindset. When this becomes habitual, I'm convinced that you will not only get what you desire or some semblance of it, but you will also positively impact the present moment. Here at the beginning of the school year, and I do realize that some of you have been back at work for over a month, but generally speaking, most teachers are getting close to going back to work. We often hear about how important it is to build relationships. Now, I don't disagree with that at all, but I think sometimes we create these dichotomies or these conflicts rather than trying to be able to do things simultaneously. As far as I'm concerned, we do way too much verses in education. Let me give you a couple of examples. Teaching versus learning. Yeah, okay. I mean, this one has never made sense to me 
because teaching is what teachers do and learning is what students do. Now, of course, many like to create this caricature that somehow teaching, and you have to use air quotes when you do it, like really cynical sort of teaching air quotes, means lecturing or direct instruction or something like that. But that couldn't be further from the truth. That's not all there is to teaching. But of course, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story or don't let the truth get in the way of some good old-fashioned hyperbole for social media. Here's another one. Extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. Now, I realize that's a thing, but to me, this debate is not really helpful because I think people are far more complex than these binary silos. And I think most of us are actually both. We can be motivated by some extrinsic reinforcement or feedback and be intrinsically motivated and fulfilled with what we're doing. And I've mentioned this before, but the challenge with intrinsic motivation is how do you authenticate it? There's only a couple of ways you can do that. One is to infer that someone, through observation, that someone is intrinsically motivated, or you simply take their word for it. You believe them when they tell you they are intrinsically motivated. But one mitigating factor in all of that is that human beings have a tendency to be a bit performative. So if I were to assert that I'm extrinsically motivated, I would be viewed as less than. I would be viewed as not evolved. I would be sort of lowbrow. Like in education, we like to say, oh, it's not about the money. But let's be honest, when fair or reasonable compensation is not offered during contract negotiations, we take issue with that. And don't get me wrong, we should take issue with that. What I'm trying to say is that we can find motivation both intrinsically, because education is such an important pillar of society, and, and, we, and it is noble work, and we can be motivated by fair compensation and some desirable vacation time, as in the summers. It doesn't always have to be a versus. There's nothing wrong with a little more and. Here's another one, and this is what I want to focus on today. Maslow versus Bloom's. Now, you often hear in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and Bloom's taxonomy. You often hear people say, kids have to Maslow before they can Bloom. Again, that's not something I really have ever found compelling. My take on it, and you've heard me say this before, some of you, is that students can Maslow through Bloom. So back to relationships. It is important that we build strong relationships with our students. But those relationships need to be grounded in their learning. It doesn't do anyone any good to build relationships on the periphery, only to have us counter that by how we handle their learning. Strong teacher-student relationships are built from the learning outward. If you are, for example, hammering kids in the gradebook, then you're asking about their weekend or joking with them about something the funny, funny that happened on TV last night. <laughs> That's going to be fake, phony, and superficial, and the students are going to see right through that. Of course, they're not going to say anything to you. They'll just play along and smile and laugh because they don't want to create more tension or have more challenges. But don't get it twisted. If that's the case, the relationship you're building with your students is a house of cards. When you build strong relationships through their learning, students will very quickly come to trust you. Asking how someone's older sister is doing in university or, hey, how was your soccer game on the weekend? That's not going to be as impactful 
is what you do when a student struggles to grasp a concept that you've just initially taught. If you lean in, support them, make it obvious that you believe in them, avoid shaming them, and do everything possible to help them learn, then they will come to know that you authentically care about them and their success. Now, as you could probably guess, I think this is especially important with our assessment practices. Assessment is relationship building. That's easy to teach and motivate the already motivated, but where we should be measuring ourselves and our impact is how we can inspire those students who are initially uninspired or unmotivated. When you think about it, school is such an interesting place and really doesn't reflect a lot of society. First, adults are constantly telling children and adolescents that this is the best time of their lives and that they should enjoy it while they can. Except whenever I ask any group of adults, especially educators, when I ask any group of educators if they would go back to junior high or high school, almost no one raises their hand. Why is that? Why do we tell kids that being a kid or a teenager is the best time of their lives, but none of us as adults would go back? The other interesting part about school is that until students get to those last couple of years of high school, almost every subject they're enrolled in is mandatory. In other words, we force them against their will to take the subjects they're enrolled in. But if they appear to lack motivation or engagement, we put it on them. We say they're apathetic or some derivative of that. Now, I know not all educators do that, and it's obviously not the majority but it's enough to notice. Now, I use this example in workshops all the time when I say to people, listen, imagine if I force you to become a heavy-duty mechanic against your will. And then when you expressed any lack of desire or motivation, I asserted that you had a bad attitude or that you were somehow less than because you couldn't find inspiration in learning how to fix a bulldozer. My point is that we have to focus on building relationships but not at the expense of learning and not before learning. Now, it is true that students will likely be more engaged and motivated if they have a strong, meaningful relationship with their teacher. But this is one of those things where I think we can and should build the plane while we are flying. Building a strong relationship through their learning means that once the relationship solidifies, you've hit the ground running when it comes to their proficiency. You'll find your way with sound, accurate, and appropriate grading practices. Now, while there are always exceptions to the rule, we typically aren't going to build strong, meaningful relationships with students while simultaneously hammering them in the gradebook with penalties or zeros or anything like that. Our relationships in that scenario will at best be superficial. Not only will students learn not to trust you, they simply won't believe you when you tell them that you care about them. They won't believe you when you tell them you have their best interest in mind. And, and spare me the it's for their own good assertion. That's a cop out. By making learning intentions crystal clear, by making success criteria transparent, by providing feedback that makes it obvious what's next for that learner, and by providing as much support as necessary for them to reach proficiency, that's all you need to do to show them that you truly care about them. It's Maslow through Blooms. Now, as the cliches go, talk is cheap and actions speak louder than words. How you handle their learning will go much further to establishing a meaningful relationship with your students than anything you do or say on the periphery. Their learning is what matters the most. If a student has struggles at home, then yes, we need to support them with those struggles. 
but we can also help them find success at school so that school is the one place where there isn't struggle. If a student has, for example, experienced trauma, then school can be the one place that is trauma-informed and allows the student to learn the coping strategies needed for success both socially and academically. When we say that all means all, we have to believe that. It can't just be something we say. It has to be something we believe. It has to be something we feel. When you feel all means all in a way that is unshakable, then you will do anything it takes to help that student succeed. I'm not trying to be dismissive of all of the other things that some of our students are having to deal with. Just the opposite. Real success at school academically could potentially neutralize so many of the other things that many of our students have to navigate in their lives. It can give them the competence, the confidence, and the self-respect needed to navigate so many of the other treacherous and unpredictable things they have to overcome. Build strong relationships through their learning, not before their learning. Remember, it's Maslow through Blooms. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, we have a question from a listener about how to convert levels to letter grades in a secondary environment, especially when the electronic gradebook only accepts percentage-based scores. Now, full disclosure, uh, this was a question from a few months ago that was buried in my inbox. Now, the irony is not lost on me that I ask you all at the end of each episode to email me your questions for Assessment Corner, and then when a listener does so, I go about the business of ignoring it. I'll be better. <laughs> okay, so let's get started. Now, the, the first rule I would establish, and I don't think I'm unique in this, is that you always go from level to percentage and not the other way around. We can't say, well, you scored a 75%, therefore you're a two, because the 75% on its own is not accounting for the type of error that the students made. Now, many of you have heard me talk about this before, because at best, what you get with a percentage-based score is an incomplete view of the learner, because we're not accounting for the type of error. Two students who, you know, one leaves five questions blank, the other makes five simple mistakes. They'll be treated the same in a percentage-based system, but they are, they are not in the same place as learners. So we always go from level, which is about quality, not counting, to percentage-based grades. So let me start off by saying there are no flawless ways to do this. Let me repeat myself. There are no flawless ways to do this. What I'm about to share with you is an imperfect solution to an already imperfect system. I almost should have named this segment, don't at me assessment version, because you don't need to point out all of the flaws in what I'm about to share with you. I'm aware of all of them. Now, longtime listeners, you've heard me rail against the percentage-based system so many times. I'm not gonna repeat myself here, but we know the percentage-based grading system is wildly unreliable and grossly inaccurate. Okay, so let me get to the point of how I would do the conversion. And it all has to do with where your passing threshold is. So let me begin with what is the most common passing threshold across the United States, and that is 60%. My thinking has evolved over time on this. Not that I wouldn't think this way before, but I'm more solid in thinking that what I would do is convert from percentages to levels 
or I should say from levels to percentages um, at source rather than wait till the very end. It's not that you couldn't do it the other way. That's fine. Um, and I wouldn't argue with somebody advocating wanting to do it that way. I'm just telling you what I think I would do. So in the case where the passing threshold is 60%, here's what I would do. If a student scored a four or a level four, high quality, sophisticated, I would enter 100, a 388, a 276, a 164, and an insufficient evidence would be a 52. I go back 12, which is somewhat random, but it's no more random than the plus or minus five to six point margin of error in a percentage-based grading system where you're making indirect scoring inferences. So again, I realize the flaw. I go back 12 because I want each level to fall within each grade band. So a four falls within the A range, a three falls within the B range, a two, a C, a one, a D, insufficient evidence, an F. Now, when you enter those scores for individual samples, they'll start to mix and produce different percentages organically. Like there's no such thing as a 94 on the scale. But, but if you were to average... Um, a four and a three, then you'd end up with a 94. Now, again, there's a lot of talk about not averaging grades, but again, averaging is a valid mathematical computation. It has its flaws. We have to be averaging the right stuff. I'm not going to spend too much time getting into that now. Maybe I'll do that next time, but what you're averaging makes a difference for sure. But just so you understand, this is this is, again, all of the imperfections of what I'm describing to you, but you'd have that 94. So you don't need to email me, DM me, or tweet me about the flaws, okay? I got it. Now, some people are immediately going to, and they do, and they have, reacted by saying, Tom, does that mean a student gets a 52 for doing nothing? And the answer to that question is yes. The entire exercise of what I'm telling you is an attempt to make sure that the mathematics of the gradebook stay proper. And again, I've been over the impact of zeros many, many times, the extreme scores and how it annihilates an, an, a, a student's grade. Um, all of that is true. So we have two choices. We either shrink our scale or raise our floor, and raising our floor to a 52. This is always the moment where I remind people that a 52 is an insufficient evidence, or technically an F. It's a good solid F. It's eight deep. So in these situations, I often ask people one of my favorite questions to ask people. How F does your F need to be? When is it F enough? <laughs> I never really get an answer. Are you wanting to accurately report insufficient evidence? Or are you really wanting to stick it to a kid? Those questions normally go unanswered. Now, of course, in an ideal world, we would eliminate any references to percentages and be able to have grade books that accepted integers. And of course, we do have grade books that do that on a standards-based grading side. But where that's not the case, we have to give people viable solutions and not preach at them about the perils of the percentage-based grading system when that's the system they have to deal with in their school districts and they have zero control over changing the grade book. Now, if your passing threshold is a 70%, as it is, for example, in Texas, then I would do it this way. A 4 would be a 100, a 3 would be a 90, a 2 would be an 80, a 1 would be a 70, and insufficient evidence would be a 60. Now, the one thing I don't love about that is that you have both the 4 and the 3 
landing in the A range. So that, yes, that, that is a problem. Um, but I think that can be overcome because of how the scale is squeezed with the passing threshold at 70%. If your passing threshold is at 50%, as it is in many places in Canada, including my jurisdiction in British Columbia, then this is what I would do. When a student scores a four, they get 100. A three, 85. A two, a 70. A one, a 55. And a zero or an insufficient evidence would be a 40. Again, I know that sounds somewhat arbitrary, but it's no more arbitrary than that plus or minus five to six point margin of error that the research indicates happens when teachers make indirect scoring inferences and assign a zero to 100 score. If you're going to argue that the percentage-based grading system is precise and accurate, you would clearly be unfamiliar with over 100 years of research. Just saying. <laughs> this dilemma of converting to percentages needs real solutions, even if they are imperfect. What people facing this situation don't need are people preaching at them about how flawed the percentage system is. They know that. What they need is a short-term solution that helps them navigate the changes they want to make, even if their system doesn't allow for full implementation. Now, I can tell you that everyone I know who has tried the systems that I've just described to you has had a lot of success and has told me that, Tom, it's a pretty accurate way of determining the student's level of proficiency. Now, in fairness, no one who has not had success has ever told me that. So I guess they could be out there. They just haven't shared that with me. So my perspective on this, in fairness, could be skewed or biased. But all I can tell you is that anyone who's ever tried using that system, the ones that I've just described to you, has had a lot of success and has felt very confident that the grades they were reporting were accurate. Now, the big picture is that I would convert its source so that we can account for quality and making sure that the percentage equivalent lines up to appropriate levels of proficiency. When we do that, it, it, it at least gives us a fighting chance to accurately report learning, even though we have a system that is antiquated and stuck in the dark ages. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast and or me on Twitter, now X, uh, at Tom Shimmer or at Tom Shimmer Pod. Instagram, it's at Tom Shimmer, at Tom Shimmer Podcast. You can follow the YouTube channel, at Tom Shimmer Podcast on TikTok as well. Also, please email the pod, TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Uh, if you have questions for Assessment Corner or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast, and I promise to attend to those emails more uh, swiftly, uh, <laughs> And a reminder to check the show notes for links uh, for the upcoming professional learning events I mentioned in the opening, as well as my new book, Redefining Student Accountability. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.